0: Hello, everyone, you're listening to Digital Builder, a podcast brought to you by Autodesk, made for construction professionals who want to hear from those on the forefront of construction technology. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Each episode will feature a conversation with a construction industry leader. Together, we'll dig in on themes related to connected construction and discuss where the future of the construction industry is headed. Now let's get
1: started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of Autodesk's Digital Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Thomas. This week, we'll be discussing the nuances of construction contracts and finding ways to ensure you get paid in full and on time. We'll also dig into some common contract mistakes and how to avoid them. To help tell the story, I'm joined by Carolyn Chromines. Carolyn is a published author, award-winning lawyer, and owner and managing partner of the Chromines Law Firm. She's the co-founder of Morale Masonry Supply, and owner of the Subcontractor Institute, an online educational platform for contractors. She's also the host of her own construction podcast called Quit Getting Screwed. Thanks for joining me on the show today, Carolyn. I'm excited to hear about your approach to getting subcontractors paid on time and how those out there listening can improve their approach to contracts and you know take a cue from your own podcast title and quit getting screwed themselves.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, that's what I'm, I'm all about here, trying to really break this down in a plain English way so everybody can understand what's going on.
1: And it's, it's always such a great way to step back and just really evaluate what most people consider to be just a common situation, like, oh, contracts are contentious, blah, 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 without really digging in on what we can do to improve it. And obviously, everybody needs to protect themselves to some degree. But I think there's some steps that we can hopefully take to to make the process a little bit less uncomfortable, to, say the, to put it lightly. So to get started, I wanted to spend some time looking at the current landscape in construction when it comes to contracts and payments. And admittedly, like I just said, this is uncomfortable sometimes, but I think it's important to really talk about in an open way so we can just improve that overall experience. So can you give me an overview of the state of the world when it comes to contracts and payments on a typical construction project?
0: Yeah, I, let's start with, I think, let's start with the contract portion because I think that's so essential. And it's like the 10,000 pound elephant in the room that no one's talking about. The system is broken, right? Right. The contract is supposed to be a clear set of instructions, just like plans and specs, but it becomes this monster document that nobody understands and it's not conveying expectations clearly. So it's really hugely affecting productivity, making sure everybody knows what they're supposed to do and it doesn't have to be that way, right? So you have the the part of, you know, yes, I can't understand what it says, but the second part of what the contract has become is to shift 100% of the liability downhill. And I can understand why you want to do that, but let's look at it from the perspective, what is the end result, what is happening? People don't wanna stay in construction because what's happening, they're getting screwed. And why are they getting screwed? Because they don't understand what's in their contract and they take 100% of the liability. And it never used to be this way, right? I'm not saying that the subs don't take any liability or the the general contract doesn't take any liability from the owner, but I'm saying let's negotiate, let's let's meet in the middle, which which is what it's supposed to be, right? And let's have a contract that everybody knows what it says. You know, I was talking to an attorney out of Ohio yesterday, and he said I just ran went through a 129 page subcontract for my client, going through it and. I said, could it have been boiled down to 10 pages? He said, absolutely. It's all repetitive, it's all legal ease, and there's no there's no reason. It, it should really be a tool to help everyone in the construction industry about, these are the submittals we want. These were when they need to be turned in. These are the daily reports we want. These are how they turned in. It doesn't have to be this monster document that you just have to like hold your nose and sign and hope for the best. So that's my current opinion on it. <laughs>
1: And I I think everybody would benefit from more straightforward language in those documents. And and I had to chuckle because this brings me back to my days of federal contracting when I was still doing proposal management. And most of those RFPs were two, three, 400 pages in length. And it was so obvious when the language was copied from one RFP and pasted into another one because the dots weren't connected and it was confusing. And you can ask all the questions you want to the contracting officer, but you may or may not get an answer. And at the end of the day, you're doing the owner a disservice because you're not setting the level very clearly on expectations. And so there's room for mistakes and, you know, misalignments at the end of the day that are just unnecessary if if we're being a little bit more straightforward with our contracting. So... I'd like to take a closer look at the, the contract types our listeners are signing every day. So I know there are prime contracts and subcontracts. Can you get us a little closer to the nuance of the difference and you know which ones are most relevant for our specialty contractors out there?
0: Absolutely. So the prime contract is the contract between the owner and what I like to call the place one contractor because they're in place one on the food chain or the general contractor normally. And so that puts out the terms and conditions between the owner and the general, and the general can negotiate the contract with the owner. And then the general contractor, the place one, hires subcontractors, and that is a subcontract agreement. And so that, you know, relegates the terms of that agreement. What has happened and what has been happening as long as I've been reading contracts, subcontracts is one of the, on the first page of the subcontract, there's a line that incorporates the terms of the prime contract. And so here's the thing is that these sub- subcontractors, specialty contractors, trade contractors are going to be held responsible and, you know, liable to the terms of the prime contract. The problem is, is that they've never seen that document. They have no idea what it says. They don't get to negotiate the terms of that, of that contract. And, and sometimes when, even when they request a copy, they're not given one. So, I mean, yes, I th- it's supposed to work the chain, but and in, in my opinion, it's kind of you know a catch all. If I miss something, it'll be in there. But I don't think, first off, I don't think it's unreasonable that if you're gonna be held liable to the terms of your contract, that everything's in that contract. And so that portion could be removed or that at the very least, you get a copy of that contract so you know what it says. So if there's things like I had a client that didn't have delay damages in their contract but was held to be have delay damages because they finished you know 100 days late because the delay damages was in the prime contract and although they never read it they were held liable to its terms so those are how those two interplay another big thing that's come up with the, you know, material price increases and everything is what's called a GMP contract, a guaranteed maximum price contract. And so what this tries to do is shove, is, is shift the risk of material price increases either to the general and then from the general to the subs. And so it's got a big, it's got the name general, you know, uh, guaranteed maximum price contract. And so you know what it is on the front end, but here's the thing is if your contract that you sign doesn't allow for you to increase for material increased costs, it is a GMP, whether it's called that or not. And most contracts, most either owner to GC or prime contracts or subcontracts don't have that language in there. So it is a GMP contract just by its terms, because you cannot increase what you're charging for for the increased cost of material or labor if it's not written in there.
1: And that's such a challenging thing to navigate with the amount of uncertainty that we're dealing with right now. We had a lot of firm fixed price contracts when I was still back in federal land to put my proposal manager hat on and there was a handful of companies that bid those out like they were still cost reimbursable projects, and a lot of them went out of business because they they tried to buy the job, assuming they could get you know some cash with the REA or something at the end of the day, and it doesn't work like that, especially when you're you know dancing with the federal government. So hmm. I think just understanding those terms clear is probably a great starting point for anybody out there listening, and then make sure if you've got that prime contract clause in your subcontract. Get a hold of that, because if you're surprised by liquidated damages or delay damages or something, I mean, you signed on the dotted line, even if the transparency wasn't quite there. So you understood what you're getting into. So
0: Yeah. And that's another thing. At the end of the day, there's what you sign will be used against you, especially in commercial contracting. There's no set of rules that protect you. There's no set of, oh, this can't be in your contract it's very it's very much what you sign is what you're what's going to be used against you.
1: I'm completely okay with not being the person that has to sign on the dotted line for most of the things that uh, that roll across my desk. The challenges there are, you know, pretty obvious, but I've I've heard a lot of frustrations with a, a pay-when paid clause that appears on a lot of contracts. And you mentioned a little bit about that when we last spoke. So I was hoping you could share your thoughts about that and what specialty contractors and subs out there should, you know, look for when those clauses show up in the contracts.
0: I mean the first thing is that even if you don't want to negotiate, so what a pay let's start with what a pay-when paid clause is. So if you're a subcontractor and you do the best outstanding job in the whole world and the GC tells you what a great job you did and they, you know did a great job. That alone by itself is not enough to get paid if you have a pay one pay clause. You are relying on some something to happen that you have no control over. so the owner's got to pay the general before the general's got the obligation to pay you the sub. and that could be, I don't know 120 days. there's there's no telling about the relationship between the owner and the GC. Uh, If that's going to work, you know, you know, if the GC gets mad, you're the painter and they're mad about the tile so they don't pay the GC and now you're not getting paid. So, you know, really, if you sign, if you sign a subcontract with a pay one pay clause that you don't negotiate, you should really have enough cash on hand to float that whole contract amount just in case because you can't stop working, right? You don't have that right because the obligation to pay you hasn't been triggered yet it's the payment from the owner to the general so it is really and here's my thing is okay you know gc i understand you don't want to take the risk i don't want i the sub can't afford to take the risk because i'm putting out labor and material because i'm you know doing this and waiting to get paid let's split the risk. let's have some you know okay you know i have provisions that i recommend that if i don't if if you are gc are not paid by the owner within 30 days and it's not my fault You'll pay me fifty percent of the payout. At least I can pay for my guys, and you know I'm not, you know, and I can I can make it a little longer without getting paid. So these are just some things that we don't have to, you know, we can share, we can share the risk. Not a hundred percent of it goes, you know, because in, in that situation, the subcontractor taking a hundred percent of the risk of non-payment from the owner. The general, con- I mean, the subcontractor didn't vet the owner to make sure they had the financial capacity to, you know,
1: <laughs> so. And that's such a tough spot to be in, too, because especially if the, the subcontractor is, you know, holding the cost for all of those materials themselves and those weren't wrapped up into other parts of the bid or whatever, the amount of overhead you, and risk you have to carry is is tremendous, especially if you're, you know, bidding on 10, 15, 20, $200 million dollar projects, even if you're a specialty contractor or a subcontractor, your scope might be 20 million dollars. Like that's not an unreasonable amount for a larger you know subcontractor. So I I do like your your approach to finding a way to meet in the middle and and kind of share that risk because it does feel a little bit fairer. I'm curious is the landscape right now in construction with the amount of work going on and the in the shortages in labor is there more opportunity for these negotiations to be meaningful than there were say maybe 4 or 5 years ago
0: I definitely think so and especially if you know you're working with a GC that truly appreciates your work you have great customer service and you do a good job that is that is worth so much to them they have less to manage you'll do a good job and so they'll be willing to negotiate as opposed to when they, you know, like you just say, and there's still a lot of P- GCs out there, so you can either sign it or, or not. And then you got to decide that risk, but knowing what the risk is going in. And like I said, like I say all the time, I never see a good project. So, you know, I'm kind of jaded from the perspective of, I know what damages it can cause and it, and it probably does it most of the time, but just still having that in there. It is a hard thing.
1: Yeah, it's it's a good perspective to have coming in and just making sure your your bases are covered. And I I like your point about the relationships too because this industry is entirely built on relationships and I I know from past experience that sometimes the GC will pick a specialty contractor or a sub that is more expensive than one of their competitors simply because they know that they're a good person to work with. Like they've got a great experience. They're already built into their systems and such. And so, you know, your overhead costs go down when you don't have to bring a brand new contractor up to speed, and so finding that middle point to support everybody across the project and continue, you know, empowering our teams to be successful, I think is is a great baseline to set with uh, with how you interact with your subcontractors. But this this kind of leads into my next question, especially for those that might not have all of the cash on hand to float an entire twenty million dollar project. But you had mentioned the last time we spoke that a lot of this industry is run on credit. It. And I was wondering what that role really is and in, in how liens play into that as well.
0: Absolutely. So it's like the pay when pay clause that we just went through. So yes, the owner takes out a loan normally sometimes if he's not paying cash to do the construction, right? And so he gets credit to do that. But what ends up happening, especially with the pay when paid clause is subcontractors and material suppliers supply the labor, supply the material and the weight to get paid. And that is credit, right? You are owed a debt and right now, just, just across the board as the way it sits, if you just work and wait to get paid, you know, the extended credit. And so there's two types of credit in the world. There is secured and unsecured debt. So a great example that I like to use is that if you have like a Home Depot credit card or a credit card and you charge up a bunch of things and you don't pay it, that's an unsecured debt. In order for them to collect on that debt, they have to take you to court. So you get a judgment and then find assets to collect that amount, whether that's bank account, property, whatever, to, to collect the amount that they're owed. That is unsecured debt. When you're working just on your contract and you extend you know, credit by supplying labor and materials, that by itself is an unsecured debt. You have the same right as the credit card company does, right? You can sue the person who hired you, the GC, to pay you for those things. And then you gotta find assets to collect from and all that. The other type of credit is a secured type of credit, a secured debt. And the most common type of that that you can think of is a mortgage. So you go to buy a house. If you don't have a cash to pay for the house up front, you get a mortgage company that extends you money and in exchange, they take back a lien on the property. And What that means is that basically if you don't pay your mortgage, they can foreclose that lien and sell the property to pay what they're owed. A mechanics lien works the same way. If you do it right in your state and you file it on the project, you are now a secured creditor. The amount that you're owed for labor and materials is secured by the property that you supplied them to. You still have your unsecured debt claim against the GC or whoever hired you, but now you have a security interest in the property to the extent that you're owed money for labor and materials supplied. So it really kind of can even out that you're not extending credit and only having an unsecured claim because absolutely if you have the choice between being an unsecured creditor and being a secured creditor that's where you want to be and the construction industry you know has really has allowed this to promote people to go to work right and and feel safe that they will get paid and the United States was the United States was actually started by Thomas Jefferson because he wanted people to come build the the capital, and nobody would because it was a broke country. Who and they didn't think that they were going to get paid. So like we're not coming. He's like, okay, we'll we'll do this this way. You'll you'll feel secure and you'll come you'll come work. And so the same thing still applies. But the the tricky thing about it is that it's such a strong remedy. There's a lot of notices and timeliness that has to be followed, which is different in all 50 states.
1: It makes sense though. And, and it feels like a much safer way to approach building if it's something that's on the table for you to explore and certainly a lot more risk adverse than, you know, <laughs> maxing out your Home Depot credit card for the building supplies on a $10 million project. So that's, uh, I, I appreciate that context too. And, you know, every person in the world Touches the built world in some way, and so finding ways to incentivize this industry that's so terribly important to you know work collaboratively together and in empowering people to take on new projects and minimize that risk is I think just an impar- a paramount consideration for construction at large. So getting people a bit more educated in in these different terms and you know how to be successful is is a really great starting point on getting everybody paid, which rolls me into the second part of our conversation that is focused on. You know, what the heck can we do? And I think we've set the the stage for, you know, what's going on in our industry tied to contracting. And I'd like to take a moment now to, you know, help empower our listeners to take steps that, that, that will make improvements in their contract approach and make sure that everybody gets paid. So even though those laws differ from state to state or country to country, can you share some of those, you know, top common steps that you recommend that people can take to protect themselves when it comes to contracting and payment terms?
0: Yeah, so I mean for the contract side, I think that even if you don't want to negotiate, right? Having someone an attorney whoever break it down. This is what this means. And so, you know, you know what you're agreeing to, you know, what's expected. And so, and then you can, once you know, you can evaluate the risk. And if something's not worth the risk, then you can take steps to negotiate. But the first thing is don't just sign it. Please don't just sign it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And here's the thing is that from my experience, the subcontract that comes over is the first offer, right? It is like paying sticker price for a car. No one does that. And I think part of why subcontracts are in the state that they are in now, attorneys draft things that are the best for their client, thinking that there's going to be a negotiation. And we're going to meet in the middle somewhere. But subs were so afraid of not getting the work that they just signed it. And now there's a standard out there that's that's way one-sided. And so even if you just take the time to you know, have somebody tell you what it means and then you can decide to negotiate. So that's the main thing. And and obviously you don't have to do it through your attorney because I know that might seem intimidating. The attorney can give you some language, some ideas on how things to negotiate and meet in the middle. It's not just cross it off and say, I can't take it. You know, I'm not going to do this at all. If you don't change this, we can always work on meeting in the middle. So that's, that's my, but at the very least, just understand what you're agreeing to. And then you can go from there. Now, on the collection side, I think one of the most important things that we can do is have a consistent collection strategy before we decide to extend credit. And so when I mean extend credit, before we decide to give those materials, you know, send out that labor without getting paid. And so that is consistent at the same time. And that can be built on and built within your lien, the lien requirements for your state. And so every state is different, but what I can tell you is that every state requires notice before you file a lien. It's different on when it's required. But the main thing is, is that the whole purpose of the notice is to give people, like if you're a subcontractor, to give the owner a chance to know that you're not paid before that lien is actually filed. And so that the whole system can work together to make sure that you are paid and the lien isn't filed. So notice is always required. So what I say even if your state doesn't require notice till 75 days after work, you could always send it early if you know that there's an issue. I mean, communication again, is the key to resolving these things. So if you, if you know that there's an issue, send that notice. So all states have notice, all states will require that you have to record it in wherever the real property records are. So you can have, get, get, with, your attorney, get with an attorney and have it built up so that, you know, if you're not paid by the 60th day, here's what's gonna happen right? Here's all the things that are going to happen. And then, then, you know, then you're ready. Then it's not like, oh my gosh, I haven't been paid. And there's, you know, I'm owed over half a million dollars in my open, open invoice reports. What do I do now? And in some states, you might've waived your lien rights. So be proactive about it. I know that it can be, you know, not the most not the highest priority on your list, but it really should be one of the higher priorities.
1: And I think after you start doing this more frequently and set this as your baseline, it, it's going to get easier every time you move forward. And. I, I really like your point about just read the dang contract and really get into the weeds and I that can be painful i I, I, rec- I know I feel that pain myself after reading four or five hundred pages of an RFP looking for you know one surprise line that's going to change our entire approach to our bid or you know tell us we needed to use 11 point font instead of 12 point font and throw our proposal in the <laughs> trash so you know getting into the weeds does have an roi but you set that that baseline for yourself and you you're building you know a new approach that holds hopefully we'll improve all those projects. And it always comes back to communication and construction. It's, It's having those conversations, making sure you have those relationships, because even before you start sending those formal notices, if nobody knows you're expecting something or something slipped through the cracks, you might be able to have a conversation about it and resolve it before you start sending formal documentation out, which could make somebody a little more grumpy as far as moving forward. So, you know, have those conversations as early as possible and, you know, build those relationships.
0: Absolutely. And the other thing I can say is that if you're consistently the squeaky wheel, you will get paid first just from my experience.
1: <laughs> that makes sense. It's unfortunate that sometimes that behavior gets rewarded in a context that we're not super fond of. But in this instance, I think it makes sense to, you know, make sure your your challenges are, are heard so everybody knows what's going on. Another element tied to contracts and getting paid that everybody on here is, is certainly familiar with is the dreaded change order. And I was wondering, are there any best practices that our listeners can implement or common mistakes or pitfalls that you see to avoid that can ensure that the costs from change orders specifically are paid for? Okay,
0: so there's a couple things there. First off, read the change order provision before you sign the contract. Because yes, the change order provision is is gonna generally be the same, right? And that it's gotta be signed by both parties before the work is done. But I've seen more and more pushback to, okay, you're gonna do the work and then we'll decide the price way later on. And so, or it's only your change orders can only be approved by Bob on Tuesdays at 10 a.m so just knowing what that is even if you don't want to negotiate them know what it is in your contract to have a valid change order right and so and if you can negotiate it what i like to do in my contracts is okay if we can't agree on a price it's cost plus some percentage 15 percent, 10 percent, whatever it is so we don't have this long drawn out negotiation about what it is and we can't decide we just build in okay i'm gonna give you a price if you don't like it here's the here's the alternative and that way it's built in. And so the, and then the other thing is, you know, have the actual change order form drafted, everything that needs to be in there with the price, if, you, if it's agreed on, and signed by both parties before you do the work. Where most people get into trouble is that they don't get it signed or they don't submit it at all, or they do it after they do the work. And then, and then you're just, you know, on somebody's good graces to sign it for you because you're really not going to get paid for that extra work if it's not on a written change order. And another thing to make sure that we take account of is that if whatever we're doing, the change order is going to extend our completion date. We need to put that extra time in there as well. Because if we don't, you're not going to be entitled to it. And you're going to say, well, they should just know it's going to take longer. Well, they probably do. But if we don't put it in writing, it's not going to help you at the end of the day when you're tied down to this deadline and now delayed damages are starting to tick because you didn't finish on time and you didn't put it in the change order request. So, you know, just making sure it's signed in writing before you start the work or at least know what the process is in the contract. Try to negotiate that. If it's not something that's practical, and then follow that process is, is the main goal. Because if not, you're basically going to be doing that extra work for free.
1: Yeah, the the documentation trail in those conversations is so important. And you know anything you do where you haven't documented it and agreed it, you're putting yourself at risk. And if you've got that relationship and you're comfortable with that risk, uh, I mean entertain it maybe, but you're still putting yourself at risk until uh, you know you get those signatures on the dotted line. So I, I appreciate that perspective. And then of course, just reading everything to make sure you're capturing all that documentation in the way that the GC expects it to be. So there's no surprises when you, know, you get a little bit further along in the schedule and would like to get paid for the surprise work that you weren't expecting to do. Absolutely. So extending this out to just bid packages in general, is there any common avoidable mistakes that you see when people are submitting bids at the start of a project or that would relate to what we just discussed as far as change orders go?
0: So there's a couple things, especially in this new environment that that's going on, is that right now your bid from what's going on with escalation of materials and labor and all that, you need to put on there that if the material prices escalate more than two or 3%, that you're going to be able to change your bid for that. And I also have guys that are putting shorter timelines on their bid, like 30, 60 days. If it's not accepted, then it's withdrawn just because the market is so volatile right now. And if you don't, that could be, be a huge thing, right? That you, if, for example, I had a client that bid a job, the end of 19, it didn't get going till the middle of 20. They sent him a subcontract he didn't sign it because the prices were no, were no good. But apparently When he submitted his bid, he signed their paperwork that said the GC can rely on this. It's good forever. The prices are good forever. And so he gets a demand letter at the end of 20 that they hired somebody else to do his scope of work and it costs them $115,000 more. And now they're seeking the difference from him. And the paperwork doesn't look good for him. That's what I can tell you. And so that is one big thing too. When you do a bid, always do an itemized bid because you don't wanna just bid the whole scope and miss something. And then you're on the hook to do it because once you put a bid out there into the world, it is an offer that can be accepted. And once it's accepted, you're held liable to those terms. And so those are kind of the, some of the things. And then another big thing that I that I always see misunderstood is that subcontractors think that they're hired to do their bid. They're not hired to do their, your bid. You're hired to do the scope and they could be different, right? And so when you come in and say, well, I never didn't put that in my bid, It doesn't matter because your bid no longer describes the work you were hired to do. The scope attached to the contract does, and if those things, two things, are different, you're still held to the scope. And so, one of the things I tell my contractors is read the scope as if it were new a project, and make sure you get the same price. Because there's, there's been, you know, I've seen things as small as three thousand dollars, and I've seen things big as a couple hundred thousand dollars that were missed in that situation.
1: Yeah, that's always a scary moment when you you know shop out your bids and you go why are we $200,000 less than this other contractor and you know the other contractor might have put a ton of contingency in there or something so it's you know not an apples to apples comparison but it's tough and I could talk at for 10 hours about my feelings on the the bid and proposal process and it's coming from the perspective of the GC it was always tough because things come in very last minute and I understand why we're on a crunched amount of time to be able to put these you know bids together and everybody's worried about price shopping so we can you know get that lower price out and i'm i'm hopeful at some point that those relationships can be a little bit more streamlined because it's so painful as the person owning the submission of the proposal to catch these bids 20 minutes before the submission is due, and try to compile this 200-page document to submit into a portal that may or may not work. Like it's. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> we
0: all added stress in our lives, right?
1: <laughs> as you can see, former proposal manager here. I no longer do that work anymore because <laughs> after you know four or five years, my brain was filled, and I just didn't have the capacity to to deal with that ongoing. Stress. And I think a lot of digital tools now are improving that process in a way that makes the transparency easier and the bid packages easier to submit, which is what I'm thankful for. But that does lead into my next question, which ties into the fact that I'm a tech nerd. So I'm excited to hear what your answer on this one is. But what are ways that subcontractors can leverage technology themselves to ensure that they're getting paid?
0: Oh, my gosh, there are so many great platforms out there that allow you to do you know everything electronically and let me tell you i I don't have a preference for which one i can just tell you that you know a lot of the times sometimes you don't get paid on time because not everything is in there or it's not submitted correctly so that pushes you back another month right if you don't if the bid does not get if the the pay app doesn't get submitted properly to the owner, they have a deadline that they got to get everybody else paid. And if you're not in there, you're waiting until next month. So I think it helps eliminate all that. It has everything all in one place. And I appreciate it so much as a lawyer that I don't have to go through banker boxes looking for all the paper that go with this job, right? It <laughs> is no longer a thing. And so, and I can, if, I want, if I'm want, i fun looking for something, I can search by keyword. Oh my gosh. It saves you so much in attorney's fees too, because I don't have to spend time searching through that. So I think there's some really great platforms out there that you can use that are, are will streamline. And I know that uh, kind of the pain that a sub feels because it seems like every GC uses a different platform. And sometimes the one they have is not compatible with the one the GC uses. And so it it's all very, even if you have your own and somehow make it work with it, it's so worth it to have everything digitally. It's just as good evidence in court, right? Yeah. If it's digital, you know, because most courtrooms are now going to, I can use my computer to show everything digitally. Zoom trials are a huge thing. That's all, you know, there's no real paperwork there. So, I mean, I'm just saying, don't get me wrong. I'm from the generation. I love paper. I love to hold it. I love to write on it, you know, because that's where I wasn't born digitally. But it does save so much time and can make... The streamline the payment process because you have everything that they require and the, it, it'll all be done better. So yes, I'm all for it.
1: Everything you're sharing here is is music to my ears. And for listeners out there who haven't necessarily adopted a platform themselves, go back a couple episodes. I think it's episode 20 where Jim Lynch and Sid Haxar joined me. And we talk about the platform conversation like at, at length and really evaluating which one is the right one for your organization. But you made a really great point there about sometimes the, the tech that the GC selects may not be the same thing that the specialty contractor or subcontractor selects. And I think that's, it's important to remember that that's okay sometimes because you need to make sure as a subcontractor that you're owning your own data instead of simply being beholden to whatever the GC does as far as documentation and what's captured. Because you could get surprised where the GC turns off your access to the thing if a platform you've chosen doesn't empower you to keep your data at the end of the day, and suddenly you don't have all that documentation that you thought you did to go in and have those meaningful conversations. So you know, be smart about the tech choices you you choose. Please avoid email because it's just not a great way to document everything, especially if there is a platform option. But the technology thing is just getting more and more powerful to ensure that you know everybody has all that documentation, and then your owners are going to be happy at the end of the end of the day too because your handover packages aren't a stack of banker boxes full of stuff that they don't know what it is. Like the digital twin conversation is becoming ever more important. So I, I, I like to hear that. Absolutely. All right, so I think it's time to snag our crystal ball again and take a look at what the future might have in store for us. Do you have any predictions on how the world of contracting and payments may or may not change in the future, either in the near term or a little bit further out?
0: Well, I think the tech portion is definitely going to help streamline everything and make things communications easier. I still think that there needs to be a revolution with the contract documents. I'm not saying there needs to be a standard one, but I think there needs to be some where you don't have to hire a lawyer to read your contract to go to work. I I think, I don't know exactly how that's going to change, but I think that needs to change and I'm out there pushing for it and I hope everybody else is. It doesn't need to be, a we're losing productivity when we don't know what we're supposed to do. And at the long run, it is costing you entirely too much money. Your subs going to build that into their price. Everything gets inflated. I mean, this is not, this is where we're now. This is where we're at now, but it's not the best solution. And so I really hope and I'm going to be pushing in all the ways that I can think of to try to try to get that done. But I do think technology is going to help so much. And I think, I think we're going to hopefully see some of the older contractors realize this and jump on the platforms and become, you know, way more productive as well.
1: You know, in the last year and a half in particular has just rapidly accelerated the technology adoption and construction specifically and you know any listener of our show has heard me talk about this at length but it's it's a really important point like we are we are newly digitized in a way that we weren't 18 months ago and there's a lot of power in that as far as you know getting work done and collaborating communicating without you know being contentious in the process the other thing that comes to mind when I'm thinking about the future of contracting is, is simply our delivery methods and finding ways to explore integrate project delivery in a more meaningful way, because if you're incentivizing everybody to be more transparent about their you know, data, the documentation they have, where they're at in the project, and ultimately those incentives reward people if you, you know, beat the schedule or all sorts of things that can happen that have positive impact for everybody on the project team. It seems like a no-brainer to adopt, but I also understand that that's a complex relationship to set up too, and you can't really walk into a room and go, we're doing IPD today, hello A bunch of new specialty contractors. You guys are on board, right? (laughs)
0: Like. Yeah. Gives the people a heart attack. Got to ease into
1: that. Yeah, there's there's a transition, but I think especially if you're you're a contractor and you've got great relationships with everybody that you work with and you you're know, an owner that works over and over and over again with the same GCs who bring on the same subs, that's really an opportunity to start thinking about ways to optimize those relationships and try new things in a a way that's probably a bit less risky than, you know, showing up with a whole new team and saying, "We're going to do this," and, mm-hmm. you know, not to say don't ever do that. I mean, if if you, if you want to roll with it, by all means, I I support it. But if you're trying to take baby steps, it's a, you know, one thing at a time. Absolutely. So to close out this episode, I've got one more question that I ask every guest and the answers are always really interesting and, and span, you know, physical tools to all sorts of inspirational things. So what is one tool that you will always carry in your toolbox, no matter what kind of project you're working on?
0: An attorney that's a phone call away. That's my, because I think so much is especially in the construction industry, I don't I don't think people realize how much legal crosses over into that world or things that you really need to consider before you just sign. Uh, and, and here's the thing is that you need somebody that's going to answer the phone now, right? You can't wait two days. You can't wait a week to get an answer. Should I sign this lien waiver because I need to get paid so I can make payroll? And so I think setting up that re- relationship early on and having it where like, you know, that you, there's a phone call. We can discuss it. Let, let you know, it's kind of like almost like coaching, but from the side of, you know, I'm not going to write a demand letter. Let's, let's talk about our options here. You know, you can handle this. Here's the email I would send all of those things like a sounding board, right? From the legal perspective and what I would, what I can recommend of I've seen the bad situations and I don't want you to go there. So I think, I think that is this. And on the collection side, on the contract side, all of it, just to just to even know what you're agreeing to and and to have a plan. So I think an attorney on call that is familiar with construction, that's what they do, is a priceless tool in your toolbox.
1: And I think it's important to remember, too, especially if you have those relationships or you've got a you know an organization big enough where you have lawyers on staff. The legal team's your friend. Like they may tell you not to do certain things sometimes and you might get frustrated because you really wanted to do the thing, but they are there to protect you. And I've always been super appreciative of, of my legal teams once I built those relationships because they keep me out of trouble. And it's it's just a really important asset. And actually, one of my best friends was the uh, the former corporate counsel for one of the GCs I worked for. And I appreciate him You know, being a phone call away when something looks a little messy. I'm like, hey, eh, what do you think about this? because that sanity check definitely goes a long way when uh, you're, you know, moving forward in the construction industry specifically. Absolutely. I know you're working on some really cool projects right now, including your own podcast, and you've authored two books on today's topic. So I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about the books that you've written and share anything else that you think our listeners would be interested in hearing about.
0: Absolutely. I think think you have to Before I get into all that stuff, I think I have to start with my why and why I do all this stuff, because I think it's hugely important. And because I grew up in the trades, you know, I had my my grandfather's business went out of business because he didn't get paid on a project. And so I feel the pain. I know what it's like. And I've learned so many things on the legal side that can save a business and make you run a better business. And so I'm just trying to get that out there. And so, you know, I have subcontractor Institute, which got a lot of, you know, the rules for filing liens in all 50 States, the podcast. Which we are diving into. I'm talking to a construction attorney from all fifty states about the lien rights. So you can hear it. You can hear it on the podcast. I'm also kicking off, you know, going in d- deep dive into the the risky things about subcontracts that I'll be teaching. You have that. You have Subcontractor Institute. The books. Quick getting screwed is literally the the twenty things to watch out for when you sign a subcontract. So if you don't want to hire a lawyer, it's all in there. Quick getting stiffed is a collections and mechanics link guide for Texas specifically, because Texas is so complicated, required in a whole book. Most states are not that complicated. <laughs> um, and you know, the, the Crow Means Law firm, we're always here to help you. And I'm really trying to overcome that, you know, the stigma that's around lawyers that we just want money and we're not here to help. And And I think I should be more of a coach and more of a counselor then I should be uh, in a, you know, on the litigation side. My whole job is to keep you out of litigation, to keep you running your business. And so that's really where I'm coming from. And that's that's what I'm trying to do with the books. And, uh, and then there's tons, there's like 80 free forms at Subcontractor Institute. So all really great information out there.
1: And you touch on something that is one of my favorite parts about the construction industry at large. And everybody is Incredibly supportive and collaborative when it comes to bettering the industry at large. And of course, people are going to be protective about, you know, competitive information at times, but the lessons learned and the education that we can get from speaking to our peers and you know listening to podcasts like yours and you know, hopefully digital builder as well, it, it just brings so much value to this ongoing conversation about improvement. So I, I appreciate you sharing those resources and you know doing your part as far as empowering people to make better decisions when it comes to contracting and litigation and all those other fun things that people don't necessarily want to think about, but are incredibly important to being a successful business. Absolutely. So if listeners have any questions for you, is there a good way for them to reach out to you?
0: Probably the best way is through my website at thecromineslawfirm.com. There's a phone number. If you ever want to talk to me, my customer service guy I will set it up. Emails, my emails, carolyn at thecromineslawfirm.com. I'm available. I'm here to help. And uh, truly that's, I want to help you guys run better businesses. That's what I'm here to do.
1: Awesome. Well, if you're out there listening and you've got any questions, you know where to go. So everybody out there still, thanks for taking the time to join us on this episode of Digital Builder. If you have any questions for me or have a guest in mind for a future episode, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter via Builder underscore digital. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. All you've got to do is open the app, find Digital Builder and select the number of stars that you think we deserve. It's super easy and does make a real difference for our show. And of course, you can always like, subscribe to or share this episode if you enjoyed it. And on that final note, goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Digital Builder. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves, and then you're done.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.